Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You know, I feel sorry. I really genuinely do feel sorry for people for whom English is a second language. They had to learn English, especially if they had to learn English in adulthood. I can't imagine anything that would be harder than that. We have the goofiest language you can imagine. And you probably have noticed that there are words in the English language that are this close to being the same word. They're off by a letter or so. But can mean totally different things. I'm thinking of a couple of words like that now. There's a word in the English language called tortuous. Tortuous. Sounds very close to another English word, torturous. 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 But they mean totally different things. Tortuous means winding, meandering, taking a long time to get to the point or the goal. But torturous means painful. Somebody does a torturous thing to you, it hurts. It's physically painful. They're just off by a letter or so, but they mean very different things. Tortuous, torturous. But we're going to look at a passage today, you may want to turn there, Matthew 22, that is both at the same time. It is a meandering, shaggy dog story that takes forever to get to a point, and when it gets to the point, it's not much of a point. It's tortuous. But it's so tortuous that it's torturous. I hate this story. I avoid this story. I'll just let you in on a little secret in our Bible reading calendar that we go through day by day. When I get to this story in Matthew 22, verse 23, I, I blitz through it. I hate this story. It's a dumb story to me. It's what I would call a shaggy dog story because it's so tortuous. Well, this story that is both is not a Jesus story. It's not one of the stories that he told. He is a master storyteller, and he would never tell a story as convoluted and silly and pointless and not headed as this story. It's not one of his stories. When he tells stories, he's telling his stories because there are things about God that we cannot understand and we cannot process in any other way except in story form. We can go to work with our analytical brains all we want, but there are certain things about God, in fact, I would argue the most important things about our God that we cannot understand apart from a story. That's how we get the insights and understanding. And so when Jesus handles a story, it's so we can understand Him, we can understand the nature of God, and we can understand in no other way. It's kind of like music in that way. There's some things that music tells us that we can't absorb any other way, right? Well, Jesus' method, storytelling, is used here, <clears throat> but it's in the hands of some amateurs. And, and that's why it is so tortuous and torturous, is because they don't know how to tell a good story. In fact, it's the Sadducees that are telling the story here. And... Um, kind of puts me in the mind of 
the sensation I have when I read this story, the same sensation that I have when I hear somebody trying to be funny who can't tell a joke, and they think they're very funny, but they're not funny. That can be very tortuous and torturous as well. And I end up saying when I hear people that don't know how to tell a joke, try and tell a joke, and they think they're very funny and they're not very funny, I, I usually will make the comment, comedy should be left up to the professionals. <laughs> and that should have happened here. They should have left the storytelling up to Jesus. So let's take a look at this story that I don't particularly care for that comes from the mouths of people who don't know how to tell it. Pick it up at verse number 23 of Matthew's Gospel, 22. On that day, it was a day when Jesus had already had a run-in with the Pharisees. But on that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus to question him. He had just been questioned and had outgunned in his answer the Pharisees. That is one party of people. The Sadducees are another. The Pharisees were the professional list makers. And the way they looked at Scripture is it's a rule book. It's not a life-giving document. It's a rule book. They had figured out that there are 613 rules in there that we must keep each and every one of them every day. That's the Pharisees, the list makers. If you are a list maker, that's fine. Knock yourself out if that's the way you want to serve God. Just don't expect me to live by your list, but the Pharisees did. The Sadducees now have approached. They have watched the Pharisees go down in flames. And now the Sadducees approach thinking they can take Jesus on with a question. Now the Sadducees are a different group. They're a different group. And they are very strict in what they don't believe. They don't believe all of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is from God. Only the first five books... They have drilled down on those first five books, and they're experts on that. They have turned into something of a political party and pretty much have a lock on the high priestship and have for a number of years. And so their influence is great, but their look at the Scripture is very narrow. And the list of what they don't believe is longer than what they do. They don't believe in the miraculous. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe a lot of things. They were what we would call the theological or religious liberals of their day. There are very few things that they believe in. But they do not believe that people rise from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection. And that's why this parenthetical comment, the Sadducees now approach, who say there is no resurrection, they came to ask a question. Verse 24, asking, teacher, Moses, whom they revered above others, Moses said, quoting, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his now widowed wife and raise up children for his brother. All right? That's what the law says. And in this, they are quoting from the law. They're quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, a book of Moses. And here's where they launch into their shaggy dog story that they should have kept to themselves. Now, there were seven brothers with us. And the first married and died. So, seven brothers with us, they're pretending that this actually happened. 
the stupid story never happened. And the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, according to law. So so the second. So we're to assume that the second brother now takes the first brother's wife, and before he can raise up children to his deceased brother, which is his obligation, he dies. So along comes brother number three, and he says, I've got to raise up sons to my dead brothers. So he takes her. But guess what? He dies. And down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. So you've got seven brothers who have married the same woman. Here's their dumb question. In the resurrection, which they denied will ever take place, so it's an academic question for them, In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. So Jesus, in this resurrection that you believe in, that you're dumb enough to subscribe to, that we are so much more sophisticated and don't believe in, but in your resurrection, here is your dilemma. Whose wife will she be? They're imagining seven brothers somewhere on the other side of glory fighting, still fighting, over this woman. That's their dilemma. You see why I hate this story? It's just plain stupid. But he does give them an answer. If I'm standing in front of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to pose a dumb question like this, but they did. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. He could have added, you are mistaken on a dozen different levels. But you are mistaken. And here's why you're mistaken. Not understanding the Scriptures, which they have devoted their lives to. Likely each of these Sadducees could have repeated the first five books word for word from memory. But you don't even know what you've memorized. You don't understand the Scriptures, mistake number one. Mistake number two, neither do you understand the power of God. You don't know what you're talking about. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven who also do not marry nor are given in marriage. So let's just put that dumb part of the story aside. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, which you don't believe in, and I'm going to show you why it's a reality, have you not read, and of course they had read, what was spoken to you by God, and now he quotes from their beloved Torah, from their Mosaic law. I am the God, God speaking, I am. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's how he identified himself in what they had read. Here's his conclusion. From I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He would not identify himself as a God of a bunch of dead people. He's identifying himself as a God of living people. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive. At the time Moses wrote that, at the time Jesus quotes that, at the time they memorized that, 
Those three people were not dead, they're alive. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. We're talking about questions that Jesus asks, right? And with this one, he cuts the legs so effectively out from under the Sadducees. And he does it in front of the crowd. He does it so effectively with the question that he asks today. You'll find the question in this story. When he says in verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There is his question. And with this question, he so effectively cuts the legs out from under the Sadducees that they are stunned into silence. It's outside of our story. But verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, silenced them, with his answer, he so stuns them into silence. He had just done the same thing with the Pharisees, stopped them dead in their tracks with his question. He had done it so effectively that the crowd around, the eyewitnesses, are glad they got up that day to see that. And they're open-mouthed in their own astonishment of what Jesus had just done. And so they are stunned into silence, the Sadducees, <laughs> and, you know, it's been a few years ago. In fact, it's when we still had our office in the little house next door that uh, Lori, who was our secretary for a long time, and I were standing in the front window, and we were talking about, you know, you see things in Fairfax that you never see anywhere else. It was August, it was blazing hot, and we saw a guy going down the street on a bicycle, no shirt, with a plastic Santa under his arm. And I said you really do see things here that you don't see anywhere else. And that was exhibit A again. <laughs> but Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his question about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he had done it so effectively that the crowd is glad that they are there and they are open-mouthed astonished at what Jesus does. And what has closed their mouths, the mouths of the enemies? What has opened the mouths of the other people and made them glad they witnessed what they witnessed? Well, it's that long question in verse number 31 and 32. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's what caused it all to happen. That question. Now, was that mention of the resurrection of the dead what did it? It was. He talked to them about the resurrection of the dead. In this case, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point, as Jesus is dealing with this, and he mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those three men have been long dead. They have been centuries dead. Now, sometimes when we talk about the dead, we prefer other words. 
we talk about them being deceased. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are long centuries deceased. They are long gone. They have passed away. It's been a long time ago that they bit the dust and bought the farm, and they assumed room temperature centuries ago. They're dead. That's the way people think about it. We, we, we're talking here about the dead. What happens to me when I die is a question that people ask. And I think most often they're wanting to know what happens to this stuff? What happens to this body that I've grown very accustomed to and I am very fond of? What happens to this me, this thing? What happens when I die? And Jesus is saying with his question, really, you don't. Really, you don't. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead here. When, when bright boys get together and study different world religions and faiths and belief systems, they have a, a thing they call comparative religion and they look at all the different ways you can believe and think about God, and they say, well, you know, there are an awful lot of similarities. Every faith seems to have a golden rule, and everybody says, love your neighbor, and, and everybody says, God is powerful. And they end up saying, it really doesn't matter which one you believe, because all roads go to heaven. All faiths are the same. They all talk about salvation of the soul. I suppose that's true to an extent. But ours is the only faith that deals not only with salvation of the soul, listen to me, but also salvation of your body. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he mentions the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about how our bodies as well as our souls will one day be redeemed. You see, your body was originally designed for eternity. They tell us that, that we're only using, at best, a tenth of our brain. What was the other 90% designed for? Something. Now our bodies, admittedly, something has happened to them that they're not lasting for eternity. And that something is they have been infected They've been infected by sin, and because we live in a moral universe, there's good and there's bad. Bad has consequences for our body. But they were originally designed to last forever. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because one day, this body will be restored. That's what the Word says. Paul is in a rapture as he writes to these Corinthian believers, and he tells them in chapter 15 of his first letter to them, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery in the Bible. A mystery is something that used to be hidden and not known, but now because of the cross, it's very well known. It can be known. He says, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. There's another one of those nice words for die. We will not all sleep. In other words, sleeping, dying, is a possibility. For most of us, maybe even a probability. But we will all be changed, and that is a certainty. 
Every believer will be changed. Here's how it'll happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than the blink of an eye, a twinkling of an eye is that split second when you're looking into another eye and there's a glint of light off the inside of that eye. That's a twinkling. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound, make no mistake about it. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That body of yours is going to be changed. Wherever it is, whatever condition it's in, even if you have passed away and your spirit is in the presence of Christ, the day will come when that body will be resurrected. And if you're fortunate enough to be alive when that event takes place and your body has still got veins that are coursing with life-giving blood, your body will still be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal, your body, must put on immortality. And again, our faith is not concerned only about the redemption of your soul, but your body will be bought back and restored too. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your sting, O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That's why these things deteriorate, and that's why it will need to be restored someday. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One day your body will be restored. Wherever it is, cremated, in an old casket somewhere, eaten up by sharks and dispersed to the seven seas, it will be all brought back together miraculously by the power of God. And we'll receive a body like Jesus' resurrected body. Do you remember what that body could do? A wall was no impediment. Time and space meant nothing. He could transport instantly in that body. And lest we think it was a ghost or a spirit, Jesus said to his friends, put your hands in my hands. Touch the wound in my side. And he ate in front of them. His body had shape and form. It was material, but it was glorified. You get the same thing. You get the same thing. Our God is concerned not only for the salvation of our souls, but for the salvation of our body. Well, that's the what of our resurrection. That's the what. When you think of Christ, that's the body you get. As he does in so many other ways, the author who is now with Christ, awaiting his resurrection body. C.S. Lewis, he sets us straight and gives us perspective on this as he does on so many other things when he asks us to think about this, to think about the humblest, poorest Christian you know. Maybe that guy that stands on the, on the freeway ramp with the cardboard sign, he belongs to Christ, let's say. And in this world, he has nothing. But Lewis invites us to think about him five minutes after he's been glorified, 
after he's received that glorified body like Christ's body. And he says, the humblest one that you know, if you were to see them now as they will be then, you would be tempted to fall and worship them as God. That's what glorification of our body will do for us, you see. So that's the what. Turn to another letter of Paul's, 1 Thessalonians 4, and that answers the when question. When will this happen? That my body will be glorified. What will be the circumstances? And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this part of it either. Verse 13 of chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. I don't, don't want you to be uninformed. Some of your Bibles say ignorance. The Bible never puts a premium on ignorance. Ignorance is not bliss. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those Christians who have died. We did have their funeral, and we did sing in the garden, and we did have potato salad afterward. I don't want you to be uninformed about them, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. It's not hopeless when a believer dies. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed, will not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, this event that will happen, those who have died in Christ, who are now in his presence, in their spirit, that spirit will now be reunited with that resurrected body whether cremated or in the grave or in the belly of the shark. They'll be reunited with that resurrected body, he says, and they go first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we come, if we're fortunate enough to be alive at that event, we come second. But we come along and our body is transformed to be like unto His glorious body. So there's the when. It'll happen at different times for different people, but at the same event. That only leaves the how. Turn to the very back of your Bible to 1 John and a letter written by the same man who later on would see the resurrected Christ in the Revelation on that prison camp island of Patmos. He gives us even a preview of that when he says in the third chapter of 1 John, verses 2 and 3, listen to this. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet. We don't know yet. We haven't seen it yet, what we will be. But we know that when He appears, listen, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. When we see Jesus, at that point, at that point he, will, he will finalize His incredible love for us and He will do it by duplicating Himself. He will give you a body like his body at that point at which you see him. That split second 
glance in the face of Christ will change your body. And you will be like him because you'll see him just as he is. Think of that. That split-second glimpse of recognition when you see him and say, that's him. You'll be so changed that your body will be like his. That is what one second in his presence will do for you. Can you imagine what an eternity in his presence will do to you? <laughs> and so, our God is not the God of the dead, is he? But he's the forever God of those who live forever. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.